Friends, I know every week I encourage you to take out your Bible, follow along with me. Most of the time, you choose not to do that. But the first service this morning learned this week, I really, really mean it. It will help you to follow along with what's going on. We're going to share a rather lengthy story that comes out of 1 Samuel chapter 25. And if you want to go ahead and turn to it, um, I will pray for us. We will study the word of the Lord together. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. So as you know, our family uh, came back from New Hampshire last week. And one of the reasons that we always choose New Hampshire, we try to get up there every couple of years, is really about the people. Because we have experienced them to be some of the kindest, friendliest, most gracious people in all of New England. And for the most part, I still say that that's true. Unless, this is a big unless, unless you strand them at a departure gate at LaGuardia Airport for seven hours and then tell them that their flight to Manchester is canceled. When we first got off the flight from Tampa, we had to do a connecting flight from from Tampa to LaGuardia, LaGuardia to Manchester. We got off in, in LaGuardia and we were told that the flight to Manchester was delayed by an hour. And that's no big deal. If you've ever traveled, you just kind of put that into your planning that there's going to be a small delay. So an hour delay is very easily doable. Everyone went their separate ways and then everybody showed up an hour later for this small little flight to Manchester, only to be informed that the flight would be delayed another two hours. Well, that's when the questions started. Why is there a delay? When will we know our real departure time? The tone was very calm on everybody's part, but serious. What was happening was you had a bunch of travelers that just wanted to know uh, what was going on. They wanted a little little bit of information. And I truly believe that the woman behind the counter wanted to give them some kind of information. So she just decided to make some things up. Which, no, 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 no. This worked out really, really great for her because she gave some answers and then everybody calmed down and then she went off her shift. So... By the time everybody reconvened after what was now a three-hour hiatus, she was long gone. Everybody reassembles again, small plane, we all recognize each other. We quickly notice that there's no plane at the gate, and mysteriously, there is not an airline employee to be found anywhere. Now, I don't know how much experience you have with New Yorkers, Bostonians, and other assorted New England types, but when they get mad... They get mad. Like, not in the way that Southerners do. You know, Southerners, they get mad and they're like, well, bless your heart. New Englanders, there's no blessing of any, anything there. So uh, I realized that my kids are about to witness their very first mob scene. And I quietly said to Sung, go over to another gate. See if you can get us on a different flight. No sooner did Sung walk away when the ticket agent walked up and the mob was in her face immediately, when she announced, politely, mind you, that it would be at least another two hours. Did not take long to realize that New Englanders and New Yorkers don't take kindly to being lied to. 
So I thought, in all of my wisdom, I am going to take a different approach to this gate agent. So I set it up really, really well. I put Maria on my hip, and I had Peter hanging on to the back of my shirt, and then I had Anna follow me with the stroller, and I, and I drag everybody up to the gate agent, and, and I said to the lady, I said, ma'am, listen, I, I don't really care what's going on, but I have these three little kids, and, and I have to get them to Manchester. And let me tell you, friends, that's when the whole thing fell apart. Because that woman looked at me like I had descended from another planet. She laughed in my face, and she said, yeah, that ain't going to happen. Well, all of a sudden, my little Florida family and I got adopted by a bunch of angry New York and New Englanders. Did you just laugh in her face? One guy yelled. I want a manager here right now, screamed another woman. And everyone starts pressing towards the agent, not realizing that me and my kids are between them and the agent. And as I'm looking up through the crowd, I see this young guy in the back just walk quietly away. Now, I don't know what happened after that. Sung, by a miracle only from the hand of God, managed to get us on another flight. And as that flight was boarding, you could hear the riot from the passengers who were on the delayed flight. We're the last ones to board on this little tiny plane, and we got seated all the way in the back, and it really, really didn't matter. And I'm making my way down the aisle. Right before I get to my seat, there was the young man who had quietly walked away. And he touched my shoulder, and he said, I'm really glad your family made it. And then right before the flight took off, my phone got one of those messages. If you're an app person, you know that that the airlines all have these apps that alert you to things. And and it said, uh, the flight we were supposed to be on is now officially canceled. So we landed in Manchester an hour later, having traveled 12 hours. And while we made it, not one single piece of our luggage did, including the kids' car seats. But you know what, friends? It it really didn't matter. It didn't matter because that's just stuff. And after a very long, exhausting day, we were just glad to be exactly where we needed to be. I've just told you a whole story that is all about attitude. And our attitude makes a huge difference in how we approach things in life. It's the difference between being the arrogant, smirking gate agent, the angry mob, and the quiet man who walked away and yet ultimately ended up exactly where he wanted to be. Today, we're going to look at a story in Scripture that has three different types of attitudes. This is 1 Samuel chapter 25. As I'm telling you this story, see if you can pick up what those three attitudes are. Now Samuel died, and all of Israel assembled and mourned for him. They buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David got up and went down to the wilderness of Paran. There was a man in Moan whose property was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was clever and beautiful, but the man was surly and mean. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And this is what you will say when you get there. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. 
Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your sight, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. So David has sent his men off. They're going to go talk to Nabal because it is festival time, and they have been out in the wilderness. They've been protecting the sheep and the goats, but now they need something to celebrate and participate in the festivities with. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the time of David, and then they waited. But Nabal, this is verse 10, answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and the meat that I have butchered for my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away, and they came back, and they told David all this, and David said to them, Every man strap on his sword. And every one of them strapped on his sword, and David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with their baggage. Do you see what's happening here? David's going to war. He's going to go kill this guy, and he's going to go kill all of his men with him. But one of the young men, this would have been a servant of Nabal's, goes to Abigail, Nabal's wife, and he says, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master, and he shouted insults at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We never missed anything when they were in the fields as long as we were with them. They were a wall to us by both night and day, and while we, and while we were, were with them keeping the sheep. Therefore, Abigail, please know this and consider what you should do, for evil has been decided against our master and all of his house. He is so ill-natured that no one can speak to him. So you have one of Nabal's servants going to Nabal's wife saying, you know what, your husband's been pretty mean here, and you should know that there's some retaliation about to happen. Well, Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep ready-dressed, five measures of parched grain, 100 clusters of raisin, 200 cakes of figs. She loaded them onto the donkeys, and she says to her young men, go on ahead of me, I'm coming after you. But she didn't tell her husband. As she rode on the donkey, she came down under the cover of the mountain, and David and his men came down towards her, and she met them. And David had said, Surely it was in vain that I protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness. So nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, but yet he returned evil for good. So Abigail, when she saw David, hurried and got off her donkey and fell before David on her face, bowing to the ground. And she fell to his feet and she said, Upon me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, this is where it gets really, really tricky. Abigail's about to use the Lord, the, the word, the Lord, over and over and over again. When you see it as a capital Lord, we're talking about God. When you see it as a lowercase Lord, we're talking about either David or we're talking about Nabal. So see if you can follow along with me here. Upon me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the word of your servant. My Lord, do not take seriously this ill-natured fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Nabal means fool. But I sent your servant, 
But I, your servant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, since the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from taking vengeance with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be like Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. Abigail knows. Abigail knows that David is following the will of the Lord. She's got it. She understands that he has been sent from God. If anyone should rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, under the care of the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies shall shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. When the Lord has done to my Lord according to all that is good, that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for having saved himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. Abigail saying, look, I know who you are. I know that you are David. I know that you are doing the will of God. And I know that God's going to keep working in you. If you kill my husband, his blood is going to be on your hands. And you don't want that. So here, take all these gifts. Take what I have brought you. All the things that you needed for your men. But think twice before you kill my husband, because you're going to be great, David, and you don't want this to literally be a stain on you. David says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to meet me today. Blessed be your good sense. Right? That's a good thing. Blessed be your good sense. And blessed be you who have kept me today from blood guilt, from avenging myself by my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning, there would not have been left to Nabal as much as one male. The plan was, kill all the men. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have heeded your voice, and I have granted your petition. So literally, Abigail has managed to call off the troops. Abigail gets back to Nabal. And he's decided that he's going to have himself a feast at this time. It's a feast fit for a king. His heart was merry within him, for he was drunk. No point arguing with a drunk person. So she decides, I will wait till the morning to have this conversation with him. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him about these things, and his heart died within him. Such an important way that this is phrased. His heart died within him doesn't say that he died. It says that his heart died. It became like stone. Next verse, though, <clears throat> about 10 days later, the Lord strikes Nabal, and then he dies. But you know what, friends? Having a heart of stone, that's like living an earthly death. That's what that is. Having a heart that doesn't feel, that doesn't beat, that doesn't have compassion for other people, you might as well be dead. You'd be better off. So the first attitude that we encounter in this story is Nabal's. Nabal is this wealthy land and business owner. He's done extraordinarily well for himself. You can't knock his success. The guy did good. You can't knock it. And his attitude is, what is mine is mine, and you, 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 you can't have it. 
And all of us think, all of us, I think, can identify with this on some level. All of us who have worked, who have earned something, who have been given things, there's some part of us that says, this is mine. You can't have it. And we think, it's, it's so strange, we think that we understand the concept of sharing in kindergarten, but as adults, if we're honest, we really tend to regard that as a kind of foolishness, as child's play. Interestingly enough, as I said, the word Nabal means fool. See, it's not that Nabal had just a little bit that he could share. He had lots and lots and lots. He had a thousand goats. He had 3,000 sheep and the infrastructure to support them all. So that's all that land and grain and feed and the staff to care for them. In the ancient scheme of things, this guy is loaded. He is loaded. When you look back at what Abigail gave, she gave five sheep. Five out of 3,000. By the following spring, when the new sheep were born, he'd have twice as many. Five was all it took. And here we are in the sharing season. It's this time of great festivity. Nabal has these abundance of resources. He could have easily shared with David and his men who were going through a rough time. But rather than show compassion for David or gratitude, even gratitude, if you can't show compassion, try gratitude for the protection that David and his men gave to his shepherds, Nabal rejects the request. And not only does he reject it, it's not just like, no, I I can't help you. He then goes a step further and decides to insult David and his men. And he questions their character and he slanders their reputation. Basically what's going on here is Nabal's being selfish. He saw what he had as belonging to him alone. He has no responsibility to share it with anyone else. So he chose to, to hoard what he had. And he wasn't about to be kind to anyone who asked him to share. And not only, was he, not only was he unkind, but he went even further to insult those who asked. Nabal sounds like a real jerk. But let me ask you something. Has it ever happened to you that someone or some organization has come and asked you for something, and that something is probably going to be money, and because you don't really want to give it to them in the first place, your first response is, well, how are you going to use it? How do I know that you're going to take good care of my money? Because in the time that it's going to take you to judge the person who's asking or the project's worthiness, you've deflated the whole sense of asking in the first place. I've done it. You've done it. It's part of an attitude that that cries out, look, what's mine is mine, and I'm not going to share it. Another attitude that shows up in the story is David's. His men have worked very hard to protect Nabal's shepherds. They did the right thing at every turn. And now David wants to say, what's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. This is an attitude that is very pervasive at the Lee house at the moment. Peter extends what he feels is a gracious amount of patience, which, trust me, is neither gracious nor patient, to his baby sister. But when he feels that he has done his due diligence, he just simply takes whatever he wants from her and walks away. He's five. He's five. And he and David seem to be having similar responses. David's response here is, exactly, is, is exacerbated by the attitude that Nabal gave off. 
As a military leader, he's accustomed to living off the land, and it wasn't hard for David to come to the conclusion that if, Dave, if Nabal's not going to work with him, Nabal must die. He must die, and the land should be plundered. And thankfully, Nabal's wife, Abigail, heads him off, keeps David from completing the murder and robbery that he intended. But nevertheless, the attitude was there, that David would take what he wanted, no matter who it belonged to. Oftentimes, our attitudes are impacted by the attitudes of the people around us. If the ticket agent hadn't been so rude to me, we might have been able to keep the temperature in that terminal down a little bit. But her arrogance and her defiance brought out this angry and defensive tone among all the passengers. Likewise, there are graceful ways to give. There are also ungraceful ways not to give. And when we run across the ungraceful givers, it's really hard not to be negative towards them. Let me give you an example of this. Have you ever gone out to dinner with a group of friends? And, and there's one friend, and there's always one friend in every group who does this. They spend the entire night complaining about the cost of everything. Everything costs so much. Milk and taxes and taxis and airplanes and food and everything costs and costs. I mean, they, they spend the entire night. That's all they want to talk about. He feels so strongly, this, this friend, that everyone is out there to try to nickel and dime him. And he can't believe it when the check comes that they want 10% tip. He thinks this is just terrible, absolutely terrible. The problem is that you pay the check and all the friends go out in the parking lot and when everyone is getting ready to go their separate ways, he starts heading over to his Corvette. And he waves goodbye to all the friends and he says, see you guys when I get back from my cruise in three weeks. See, it's really difficult to combat an attitude of selfishness, even for David. So David embraces this attitude that says, if you're so selfish that you can't share what you have, I'll just take it. But do remember, I did ask you nicely. See, there has to be another way. There, somewhere between Nabal and David, there has to be another way. And that's the attitude that's displayed by Abigail. Even in the Old Testament, though women weren't highly thought of, <clears throat> they were respected as part owners in their husband's property. So what Nabal had, Abigail also had. And she didn't view her possessions <clears throat> as belonging solely to her. She saw them as a trust from God that she got to manage and to manage wisely. So her attitude was, what is mine is God's and I'm going to share it. She knew that David was God's chosen king, that he was accomplishing God's will for Israel. She also knew that he and his men had protected Nabal's shepherds and had done them a really great service, which in turn benefited her. She knew that David was about to commit a crime that he would always regret. And rather than clinging to the resources that she had, just hunkering down, which is what many of us are naturally inclined to do, Abigail acted as God's agent to feed David and his men, save David from unnecessary guilt, and in the process, protect her foolish husband from getting killed. She did all this with a clear sense of God's presence and his activity in the situation. Abigail was able to accomplish a tremendous amount of things by taking the attitude that it all, all of it belongs to God. And when we share what we have from God, everyone 
is better off. The third attitude is the kind of attitude that that God wants for us. It's the kind of attitude which is ultimately going to do us the most good. The truth of the matter is that whatever we have, if you're honest about it, it's a gift of God's grace. No matter how hard you have worked for what you have, there are plenty of people who have worked just as hard, if not harder, but have even less or nothing. There are so many accidents of birth and circumstance that all contribute to what we have that we never can take full credit and claim full ownership of all of our possessions. The appropriate response is one of gratitude to God for the opportunity to have what you have. And more than gratitude, there's a sense of stewardship that's called for. To have a mindset of a steward is to recognize that, that what you have, that's, that's temporary. It's a trust from God. God has given you what you have, not so that you can hoard it, but so that you can use it as a tool for loving others and for spiritual growth. And guess what? It's for your spiritual growth. All the resources that we have, including our financial resources, are given to us so that we can learn to reflect a loving generosity from God who made us. We are fools. We're absolutely fools if we think that possessions are the key to our happiness and security. We can buy all the stuff that we want, but if we don't learn to be generous givers, our possessions actually start to become a barrier between us and other people. We become obsessed with having our own stuff, with protecting it, with maintaining it. And when you're caught in that trap, it takes so much energy to keep up that way. You call it keeping up with the Joneses. Marianne, everybody's keeping up with you. Keeping up with the Joneses that you don't have the energy to work on your spiritual growth. It's a very difficult thing to do. When you're focused on acquiring assets and protecting your assets, you're not focused on spiritual growth or service to others. That's an attitude that all of us have. And oftentimes it's said that wealthy people tend to give less. That might be true. But you know what? There's a lot of poor people who give less too. On some level, all of us give less than we really, really could. We just don't want to be honest about it. Attitude can change everything. It can make the difference on your way to a final destination. You can certainly give without faith or with a poor attitude. And while that giving might be helpful to others, it's no better than not giving at all because it doesn't accomplish all that it should. Giving is just important for the sake of the church and the people who receive your gift, as it is for your own spiritual growth and development. Learning to see God as the real owner of your possessions, recognizing that you hold them only temporarily in trust, and finding that the greatest joy is in sharing God's blessings with others, that's what it's all about. That's what spiritual maturity is. You can give without faith, but you cannot have real faith without giving. Because the goal of faith is to make us givers who are modeled after the heart of Jesus Christ and love of God. Now, in my story about Manchester, by the end of the weekend, all of the people, all of them made it to Manchester. How they got there and who they impacted along the way, that's all a matter of attitude. Attitude in terms of generosity is the difference between foolishness and spiritual maturity. For those with spiritual maturity, 
the trip may have some detours along the way. In fact, I know it will have some detours along the way. But what those with spiritual maturity have is that they know that regardless of the detours, the final destination is well worth it. To God be the glory, now and forevermore. Amen.